Shishi Gornitananda ki jai, Shishi Dauji Gupal ki jai, Shishi Gorada Madhava ki jai, Guru Vaishnava Guru Parampara ki jai, Gor Bhakta Binda ki jai, Bodh Premanandi. Welcome. Good to see you again. And you must have come along with you. What's your name? Nice to meet you again. And I'm Caleb. Caleb, mm-hmm. are you from the area? Kind of. I was visiting near here. I live in Davis now. Okay, good. Nice to have you. So, any any questions tonight? Yes. You wrote that there are two aspects of the interpretive voice. One is to harmonize uh, your like faith with reason, and then uh, I guess like when you've done that, then to interface it with uh, other currents of thought. So you're asking for some clarity on that, yeah. right? Um, what what um, What's meant there is that um, if you take the sacred texts of the Hindus, which is a form of revelation, it's I liken it to an answer, if you will, to the question that human life is. Human life is a question in as much as human life differs from less complex forms of life in that in human life we start to ask why and questions of meaning and value, whereas the less complex forms of life don't ask those types of questions. They ask more questions that are related to uh, their embodiment, if you will, questions about how, how to eat, how to sleep, how to mate, and how to defend. So there's a categorical difference between how question and a why question. A how question, how, in relation to my body and mind, the body-mind complex, I can proceed in life, get food, get protect myself, expand myself, mating, and so forth. So those types of how questions, nature can answer. And therefore, as I often say, we see that every animal has a built-in defense mechanism. Of course, it's limited. We can only defend ourselves so much, bodily speaking. And that's, of course, an important point that we come to contemplate in human life. And in human life, besides the how questions, we are confronted with the why question. Why means meaning, value, purpose. Matter doesn't have a purpose unto itself. It's not purposeful. The wind blows. Uh, a branch falls, we attribute meaning and value. It fell for this reason. So this is a, that's us talking. That's consciousness talking, if you will. Um, so, in human life, the difference between that moment and less complex forms of life in a general sense is that this self that's there in all species, the atma, the consciousness, what what is life, we don't consider life to be necessarily biologically based. There's a biological aspect to life in the world, but life is is um, is thought to be consciousness. And consciousness is not thought in our tradition to have a biological basis, but rather an ontological uh, ontologically it's different from 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 matter. This is just in a general way it's a form of of, of dualism in a larger picture, it's we can look at it from uh, a monistic sense, but or non-dual sense. But um, and those words, dualism, non-dualism, have many different meanings. So, um, just in a basic sense, there's consciousness and there's matter. I mean, they're non they're non-dual. They both have the same source: mm-hmm. um, light and the shadow, you know, or non-dual. But they're also different. Something like that. So, consciousness, the atma, is life, and it finds itself in different 
situations. Matter is always in flux. Consciousness is, is not in flux. So the ever-changing material phenomena, things are coming and going. As long as we remain identified with it, things will come and go around us. Bodies, for example. This is, of course, the theory of reincarnation and transmigration. So, when we rise to the, if you will, to the human form of life, then the, the self, the atma that's there in all species of life, is facilitated by that body to inquire about itself in ways that less complex forms of life don't afford the atma at that time the opportunity to inquire about itself. Therefore, we, you know, we have humans who have our, are engaged in philosophy. We don't find that trees are engaged in philosophy. We assume that the animals are, are, are not, and, and for good reason also. Mm-hmm. So, but to assume that there's no consciousness there, that's, that would be an error. Uh, yeah. So we have a kind of a pan-psychic perspective. Consciousness is all the way down, everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it's animating matter and giving meaning to matter that it would not have, does not have unto itself. I've often said that matter, if it weren't for us, matter wouldn't matter. Who would know about it? Who would, who would care about it? Hmm. That's us. So human life gives us, we, we have a sense in human life that there's more to life than what meets the eye or meets the mind. And we're looking for it. We, we, we look for it in matter. And by adjusting it, by tweaking it, by manipulating it, by exploiting it, to become more than, than what we are. Hmm. We're bipeds, you know, we walk on two legs, but you know, we, we try to fly in the air. Hmm. Although we don't have wings. We try to go to the bottom of the ocean, although we don't have fins or gills. Birds don't try to go to the bottom of the ocean, and, and sharks don't try to go above the into the clouds, but we do. And the reason that we do is that we sense that there's more to life than our present limited sense of self, limited as we are by the body, limited as we are by the mind. We, we, we try to go beyond. This trying to go beyond causes us to work with nature, manipulate nature, exploit nature, tweak it in different ways, and make airplanes, for example, make submarines, for example. Hmm? But what's really happening is we're trying to be the more that we are, but unfortunately we're trying to be more within the context of identifying with matter, when in fact the more that we are is that we're not matter. And that's what makes us matter. And so we should go within or go without. That's the fact. And so the great spiritual traditions uh, talk to us about this. And in the context of our tradition, we have a, 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 a quite a, a considerable body of revelation or sounds, sacred texts that um, are um, aimed at directly and indirectly um, assisting us in answering the question that we are. Why am I? We're a big question mark. What is my purpose? What? This, is a, this is what human life is, a question about meaning, value, purpose, and so forth. And we can come up with different purposes, meaning and value, but, but the sacred texts speak to us about a value and a meaning and a purpose that transcends anything we could come up with in our mind. Hmm anything that we could come up with by way of manipulating material nature. In fact, it says that not, you're not going to find the more that you are and what your prospect is through that. And in trying to make your life better, you may even make it worse in some ways. It's possible. So this body of revelations, there's a couple of forms of it. The principal form is sounds that are that have no human origin, that are that are more or less the logos, the sound of our source, the sound of the Godhead, Shruti it's called, means which is heard. So it, it, it's heard, it's not invented, it's just like, it's embedded in, in reality. It's, uh, 
the, the sound of, of God, let us say. Hmm? Om is the primordial sound, pranava omkar, and all the Vedic mantras proceed from omkar. Hmm? So the om is an affirmation in a general sense to the question that we're asking, is there more to life than what meets the eye and the mind? Is there more to life than things and thoughts? And particularly thoughts about things, (laughs) which is for the most part how the mind is is unfortunately used. Hmm? And the the sacred texts say, oh, yes, there is. And so in a, in a profound way, in an abstract way, we're drawn to, this, to, the, to the sound. The more we are inquiring, the more this inquiry is ardent and pressing in our lives, then the more the answers will be uh, available when we come in touch with them and be able to assimilate them, understand them, and so forth. So the sacred texts, and then there are imbo- teachers who embody them, teach about them, explain them. Hmm? Um, and in our lineage and we have a whole heritage of decades and centuries of saintly persons who, who explain that the, these I was saying that there are, it takes two forms the original form the, the revelation the sounds are are like the sound of God so to speak and we, we call it the Veda hmm? it means, actually means knowledge Upanishad is a section of the Veda that particularly speaks about the, the Atma, the self. The word Upanishad literally means sit close. The implication of which is sit close so I can tell you a secret, so I can tell you about something that's not the common knowledge. Hmm. But knowledge about what's inside rather than what's out there. We're, we're identified outside, and so the show is attracting us but we forgot that we're the viewer and we turn on the show and <laughs> we're more important. We've got a life independent of that. So sit close, we can tell you a secret. And, and so from the Shruti, then in the context of telling the secret also on the part of the, the teacher, then there's secondary um, sacred literature, which is reflecting on the sounds and their implications, telling a story to bring out the meaning so there are texts that are, there are like commands, like sound formulas, like equations. Then there are narrative texts that kind of take the equation and play it out in a, in a, in a narrative, a story, and, and, and so forth. So the different types of sacred text. But this entire body is, of, is considerable, really. The most voluminous body of literature on earth is this, the sacred books of the Hindus. And... Um, and so, your question is about that. Um, I've recently published a new book called Sacred Preface, and, I, and, and Shamanan is referring to something I wrote in the preface of the book, in which I explain that these texts can be looked at in three basic different ways. One way is to look at them literally. One way is to look at them interpretively. Another way is to look at them esoterically, to read them esoterically, to use a, a term in our uh, our lineage to read them in a, a rasically, in a rasic sense. Hmm. Uh, so, literal, interpretive, and um, esoteric. That said, even the literal will be esoteric. It's esoteric knowledge, hmm. and the interpretive will also be esoteric. And the esoteric will be esoteric and, and esoteric. <laughs> uh, so, um, you're asking about the interpretive um, reflection and explanation of the text. Let me go into that, but first let's touch a little bit on the literal explanation. Mm-hmm. The little literal explanation or orientation to the text is one that it can... Um, can jolt us from a material preoccupation to a spiritual preoccupation. It can um, give us very kind of uh, 
solid ground and handles to hold on to um, in terms of beginning to navigate the in- interior landscape. Hmm? And um, so it tends to be presented in, a, in more of a black and white way, and that can be very useful. After all, it's, it is esoteric knowledge, so even the black and white form of it will appear rather esoteric. Hmm? It's speaking about the inner landscape and as to say how to navigate the course. So let's take an example. With the narrative section of the text, like the Puranas, which are full of narratives, stories upon stories, and a question is asked, the answer is given in the context of a story, and inside that story another story is told, another story, and then you're back to the beginning and it starts again like this. Um, so um, reading the stories in all respects, taking them literally. One can be absorbed in them and the, and to some extent the insight that they afford and, um, and uh, start to differentiate oneself and one's orientation from a pursuit of worldliness in relation to sense objects to to a, a, a spiritual life. We can kind of get our feet on the ground, so to speak. Um, um, the, and that would be useful at a certain point. Let me give an example. The teacher might explain the texts in a way um, that has that is more literal and protective. Um, like if you were to plant a tree and then you'd build a fence around it so that no deer will come and eat the fruit before the tree can grow. Hmm. And so you might teach that here is the teaching, it's here, it doesn't go outside this fence, it stays right here and and it has to, it, it, so it's kind of like boxed in, if you will. <laughs> um, but the point is that then, in the context of that, the teacher nourishes the tree with proper example on his or her part and teaching that causes it to uh, grow like you would pour water and give sunshine and so forth and... and uh, take out the weeds and so forth. But in due course, what happens? Does the tree grow? It becomes strong. It grows up. It grows beyond the fence on its own. And the lines that were previously drawn by the fence are now blurred. But they're not blurred in such a way as that they uh, cause any problem. But now one begins to see, for example, if uh, someone might say, to give another example, what do we need a temple for? Why should we spend money on a temple? God doesn't need a temple. God's everywhere. Why do we need a temple? And the answer is that God doesn't need a temple, that's right, but you need a temple because you say that God's everywhere, but you don't act like God's everywhere because you can't actually see him. You cannot see the universality of your deity. Therefore, we create a place where he will be present in a prominent way, and put a flag up, and we conduct everything that's conducted there, the ashram, in the temple. It's very clear that we're living in the presence of the Godhead in a symbolic sense. The deity is a symbolic representation. Hmm? So, of the personality of the Godhead. <laughs> so, uh, not of a void, but, uh, but of, uh, of a transcendental uh, personality, if you will. So, so we need the temple. And if you're if you, if living in the ashram, for example, visiting the ashram, um, you, know, you, 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 you travel some distance to come to the ashram. So you're going to think, I'm going to the ashram now. <laughs> I'm going to adjust my life and my thinking a little bit. And when I'm there, I'm going to conduct myself in a certain way, and so on and so forth. So it's useful to us. And then if we apply ourselves appropriately in that context, then gradually... If you go back to the other example, as this tree starts to grow, it starts to overflow the fence, gradually we start to see and realize the universality of the deity, and we start to behave in such a way 
as if we're in the presence of the deity at all times, which is actually the case. A man asked me some time back, an Indian man, when I was in a lecture that I was giving, he said, Swamiji, I'm thinking that the spiritual life should be private. Private, not something we do in public. And um, our kirtans are, tend to be public. Like here we're doing kirtan, we're in the woods. But actually there's a neighbor over there that hears it and likes it also. So it's a little bit public. And it's a way of also inviting the public. We do kirtan. What's the drum? The natives are restless. People come and they chant with us. So it's fine. Um, so he was kind of saying, I don't, I don't kind of like this idea because I think that spiritual life should be private rather than public. I said to him that spiritual life, in spiritual life there should be no difference between a private life and a public life. You should not conduct yourself one way in private and another way in public, but in the same way in all, all spirits. So you, 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 you do away with the, the private and the public conceptions and the borderlines altogether and so forth. But there's a, um, a good method for that that in the beginning may seem a little restrictive, but in the long run... It enables us to see the Godhead everywhere and and conduct ourselves accordingly. And the black and white becomes many shades of gray. Hmm? I know it was like this. It's not like this. That gives me a handle. That's good. And I go forward. And then later I can see it's like this, but it could be like this and this and this and this and this also. It's not like that, but it could be many ways of this and many ways of answering the same question. Um, the same verse can be explained in many different ways to have different applications an instruction at one time may be relevant to your status in, in terms of your progress. Another time it may have to be abandoned and another different instruction accepted for your progress. So there's this acceptance and elimination and, and so on and so forth. So the interpretive perspective and the way in which we um, then conduct ourselves, excuse me, the literal accordingly is very, can be very useful. It's almost impossible to avoid. So if I tell you, you know, Krishna is, is a name for the Godhead, he looks like this, and so on and so forth, and you, you, you'll take it in kind of a literal way, and there's truth to that. There is an ontological reality that we call Krishna, but it's, there's, there's more to the story. There's more to the story. So the interpretive perspective is one where the heart has been captured already, so we have the faith, and so we're applying ourselves on the path. And then it's, it's a situation in which we harmonize the heart with the head. Hmm? Harmonize the heart with the head. So if you were to take a, a piece of steel and you put it in the fire, then it'll get a certain heat, and just before it starts to melt, you pull it out. Then it cools off, then it becomes tempered, it becomes harder. Then again, stick it in, pull it out, and so forth. So you see, intellect is not unto itself a vehicle that can take us to transcendence, because it's part of matter. So, nonetheless, it can be useful. Rather than be used by your intellect, we can use the intellect. Rather than be used by your mind, we can use the mind. You know, this is yoga. Mm-hmm. So, when we take our budding faith, and then we have to reflect upon it, and examine our beliefs and convictions and so forth, and that in relation to other currents of thought in the world, mm-hmm, then then it, it's, it starts to be, we can, we can test it, so to speak, it's kind of like putting it in the fire. And questions may come, and then we need good guidance for answers and so forth. And, and the faith, which is the real vehicle for going, will be, um, will be strengthened. Faith means, in this context, the clearance of doubt. If doubt is gone, one's free. If there's doubt, if there's suspicion, there'll be some suspension. Faith animates our, our life. We can't do anything without faith. If I don't believe 
that, you know, driving in this direction, I'm going to get to my destination. I thought, maybe I won't. You know, maybe there'll be an accident. Maybe I'll run out of gas. Maybe I could get a flat tire. Maybe I'll, Google Maps is wrong. You know, you just suspended. You can't go, right? So, you, you, for good reason. I mean, there's reason to have faith. There's blind faith. So, there's also seeing faith as well, well-reasoned faith. So, anyway, the interpretive perspective is one in which the intellect is applied in two ways. And this is what you're asking about. One in relation to the text itself. What is the text saying? What are the implications of it? Here's the narrative. Let's say a story of Krishna's play with his uh, gopis and gopas and, and so forth. And here's the story. He lifted Govardhan Hill. And so forth. And so, um, the interpretive perspective is going to draw all the philosophical implications of that narrative out which then serve as, as real firm ground for the practitioner to, to stand on. It has, it's pregnant with lessons, meaning, that apply to our practice. And it is an ontological reality, because in our perspective, taken from the sacred texts, transcendence is not a still um, or static existence, but a dynamic and moving one, because it's ours is a doctrine of love and love requires movement, interaction. And there's a oneness between ourselves and the Godhead and enough difference for there to be an interaction that we call rasa, love, taste, reciprocation hmm? between the deity and ourselves. So, <clears throat> on the ground of that, what we call achinti veda veda, this oneness and difference, then the the narratives would be would draw out various interpretive meaning, and by this I'm saying all the philosophical implications of the stories and so forth. It's not that the philosophical implications of them are such that the stories are no longer have meaning. They have an ontological reality. So there is interaction between the deity and the devotee and transcendence, what we call rasa and lila. This is all a necessity that arises out of it. doesn't arise out of an Advaita perspective, but a beta beta perspective, it does. So there's, there's layers and layers of, of meaning, if you will, in the text itself, implications of it. And so the interpretive perspective will be one in which we draw out that meaning and, and see the far-reaching implications of it and start to look at the gray uh, the, the grayness, if you will. The, it starts to... The interpretive perspective is one that causes some uncertainty hmm. <laughs> and teaches us to have some level of comfort with uncertainty because of the nature of, this, of, of, the, of the subject. Unknown and unknowable, lovable, but not knowable in the way that we like to apprehend things and know them and transcend them. I know that. I've got that. It's not possible in this case with the, with the, with the Godhead. Hmm. And so the black and white, or the more literal perspective, gives us some, like, security. Okay, I know this is right, and that's wrong. And when you get the interpretive perspective, it starts to become more gray. It's not black and white, it's gray. And... There's different ways to answer the same question. It's more nuanced, and as I'm saying, um, and there's some sense of uncertainty. After all, in love is a, is a certainty. Is, is, there's an uncertainty within the certainty of love. What will be next? Or two people love one another. A guy and a gal love one another, and the gal says, "Do you love me? You never say so." I, you know, I'm, is there any affirmation of that? Well, we're living together. You know? <laughs> But I mean, so there is there, a, a romantic love in particular. There's this, this, this kind of uncertainty within the certainty of of wanting to, you know, not get off the roller coaster, if you will. Uh, roller coaster is a good example. It's like, what's next? Ah, I could vomit, but I'm going to stay on. You know, ah. it's got its highs and lows. I've often said that in the world. We move for love, and we can't rest until we find it. When we find it, we find it has an orbit of its own. So again, we're moving, but now in a different way. Hmm? That's materially speaking, and it's certainly true. 
spiritually. So again, love is, is active, and it's a knowing. It, there are schools of, of active, like karma yoga, and of knowing, jnana yoga. The two cancel one another out. You become the jnana yoga, then you become a contemplative, and you're no longer an active yogin. But in bhakti, of course, is a yoga of love, then you have action, and you have knowledge, and you have something more. Knowledge and action are parts of love. And love is bigger than both of them at the same time. So, so, so the interpretive perspective, on the one hand, as I'm saying, it um, it seeks to plumb the depths of the implications of of any of the of the, of the narratives to to look at the text um, um, with cross reference uh, and so forth. It requires a little more. A familiarity with with the shabda, with the sound, with with with, with the revelation, and um, that's so that's one side. The other side of the interpretive perspective is that to explain the text with all its philosophical implications, ramifications, and so forth, in light of the thinking in the world at a particular time, the present time. And there'll always be a new present time, and new teachers, and so on and so forth. So, what are the, uh, for example, in, in five hundred years ago, in, in India, this particular teaching, there were other five, six other dominant philosophical currents: Sankhya, um, Vaisheshika, Nyaya, uh, this uh, uh, Yoga Siddhanta, and so forth. And so you can find in our seminal charyas or teachers of our, our tradition, they were acquainted with all the currents of thought at the time. Indeed, those currents of thought are found in the Bhagavatam to one extent or another, aspects of them, where aspects of them are thought to be refuted, where aspects of them are embraced, and so forth. So um, the teacher has to not only be acquainted with the sacred text, but to also be acquainted with other texts, if you will, and the currents of thought in the world today that, that already have a grip on the student to one extent or another. And then explain the sacred text in light of those ideas and how they refute those ideas or where they connect with those ideas, where there's some truth in those ideas, and so on and so forth. That is really necessary for a teacher in any given time to be relative and and um, and uh, keep the, the the sacred text alive, if you will, keep it keep it in the, in the light rather than in the, let it to go into the, into the shadows. So these are the kind of the two ways in which I've talked about the interpretive voice. One way is to is to go deeply within the text itself to the core philosophical implications of it. And the other is to go outward to the th- thoughts of the modern world, social considerations, philosophical considerations, scientific considerations, and so forth, and then look at the text in light of that and see if it, ho- if it holds up. And of course it does. Hmm? And to show how it holds up and, and how it, it's current, vital, and... Uh, of uh, of of uh, um, it's not something you know an old dusty book on the shelf. It's it's relative. I want to say to the modern um, situation. After all, I mean it's about consciousness. How, how can it possibly be irrelevant? Then again, it's speaking about it in a certain way. The texts are written original texts a long time ago. The seminal texts, and there's some cultural baggage with them that, that by which through which. The teachings were explained in consideration of taking examples from other cultures, scientific or proto-scientific or pre-scientific, uh, folk-scientific thinking, folk psychology, and so forth, using examples from that to explain the points. The folk psychology may fold in light of modern psychology, but the, the truth that was being explained through the example of a folk psychology still holds, and now it has to be explained, for example, in light of modern psychology or modern scientific findings or 
confusions, which also <laughs> are there. Um, so this is the second aspect, if you will, of the uh, interpretive voices, and it's, it's important. Hmm. Um, and it, 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 it again, it's, it seeks to show the relevance of the uh, the teaching in, as as time uh, goes on, and its ability to to uh, deal with whatever currents of thought and findings, um, um, observations we we, we we come to. And for that matter, that said, the material world itself is always full of newer and newer knowledge. There's always new things to find out about the world. So the interpretive voice is a very dynamic uh, voice in the senses in which I'm speaking and it's meant to help us, in one sense, move from a literal sense to an esoteric sense. Because the difference between the esoteric um, reading and the literal one, on its face, may not seem very different. So one may just hear the story of Krishna from an esoteric perspective and weep and just tell the story. No explanation of the impl- philosophical implications, uh, uh, and so on and so forth. So the, the, that's what the what the what the what the literal person does: is read the stories, finds the details of the stories, and remembers them, and so forth. But doesn't have the same reaction hmm? because there's some middle ground that hasn't been crossed. That, as I often say, the bhava, the ecstasy, and the lila, the divine play. It's an art, if you will, that's drawn on a particular canvas, and that's a philosophical canvas. Hmm? So, the interpretive voice helps us to get that philosophical canvas in place, hmm? and then hear the stories, having having taken those implications that were drawn from the teaching and apply them in our practice. We're like really grounded now, in in, in there's a certain steadiness that will come from one's practice, because the, the tattva, the philosophical implications, they really ground when they corner one, so to speak. It makes it difficult for one to follow just the whims of the, of the mind or the call of the wild, if you will. It makes it very difficult. Um, and, and so it, it enables one to deepen one's practice and, 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 and in such a way the inner life starts to arise, inner life and uh, experience and so forth. And then then just hear the stories. But they hear the stories, from the esoteric point of view, they can hear the story and add to the story. And Krishna said this in the text, and the implication is because, although it's not said in the text, Radha was saying this, and and. Nanda Marsh was thinking like this, and, and so forth, and the whole thing expands. Hmm. This is the, the esoteric voice. You follow me? Hmm. So this, this, it, it's like basic story, but entering into it more, and it, the rasa kind of implications of the. So there, therefore, you take, for example, the Goswami's books, the Lila Granthas, where they speak about the Lila's, the narratives. They're based on the Bhagavatam. Hmm the seminal, you know, main text. And then there are expansions of that. Well, that's not in the book. But he's drawing that out. The ontological reality of the Leela, he or she is participating in that meditatively and and therefore bearing witness to other details that aren't brought out in the book. The book is giving you a taste of the Leela and the philosophical implications of it. And if you get a taste for it, okay, go for it, and then you, you understand the philosophical implications, which grounds your your practice, and then you enter into the, the book itself, become a player there, and and then you can um, just listen to the Leela and talk about it. But you'll you'll be like the Goswami's books, the Leela books. There's there's not like a lot of philosophy in the books. Really. They're just stories. Hmm. 
but they're stories based on the Bhagavatam, again, where they're played out, they're developed more. You understand? So the, 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 the person who's listening from a literal point of view can't, can't do that. He's just listening to the stories, too. He might even get, it, get, get, the, get the philosophical implications of them wrong. It's possible. Not understand those. And certainly can't feel it so to speak. So the, the esoteric voice, if you will, and the literal voice, they're similar, but they're, they're quite different at the same time. In between is this interpretive voice, which is full of discrimination. In the in in literal voice, there's no discrimination. In the, in the esoteric voice, there's, there's no discrimination, so to speak. Intelligence is not operative. In the, in the same way as it is in the interpretive voice, as it is in the literal. And intelligence is not functioning in the esoteric perspective to the extent that it is in the interpretive perspective. Hmm. It's still functioning, but in, a, but, a, but in a different way. And heart has become more prominent. Hmm taken over, and feeling. Even in the stage of ruchi, intelligence will be operative. Um, very much so in the stage of nishti and asakti, then intelligence starts to recede to the background. Bhava, yeah, also, as well. Um, but in a very positive way, because the, that ground has been already crossed over, so to speak. Whereas in the neophyte or the literal perspective, one hasn't thought it out as well. Maybe captured by good association, by poetic ideas and and nice company and good food. And I like the music, and, and I'm spiritually interested too. Uh, you know, and I've heard a few points, and I've understood a few of them, and so forth. And and as far as my capacity to think and discriminate about such things uh, as I have one you know I'm satisfied and, but I but I like the group and I and, and and the teachers and and so forth and so on we get in we get involved we're born in it right like, like you that seems good right so your family were our devotees and so forth so um, but then you know in time you know, want to understand it a little bit more uh, deeply, and then that that becomes a challenge because you may find, hey, I thought it was like this, and this is what it meant. Hmm? And we say, oh, it kind of means that, but actually, it means more than that. Hmm? Like if I say to you, the difference between our teaching and another form of Vedanta, let's say Advaita Vedanta, is that in our teaching we say every single atma self is individual. And in the way to way down to say there is no individual self, there's only one self. So someone may say, I like that, I like the idea of being an individual. I like that. And so that may create a, 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 a samskar for bhakti, for the tradition. I like that part. Yes, I'm an individual. Of course, as we go on, we learn that the individual that you think you are is not what you are. <laughs> with all your personality and uh, materially speaking, that's, that's derived from identifying with matter, that you are an individual atma, just like there are individual atoms. Hmm? Right? But it's not like one atma likes chocolate and one likes vanilla. Another likes peanut butter with, with chocolate and vanilla. It's not like that. Those are all resulting from atma, identifying with matter and getting a personality in relation to, to, to matter. Mm-hmm. We, move, we move that away. That's, that's a clutter, if you will. And in the context of moving it away, spiritual individuality grows from the bare atma, if you will, in relation to the Godhead in, in Leela. Good association. So, it's just a simple point. I see, seen people, and then you have to come to grips with that. Oh, I see. I'm not, 
that's not the per- that's not the individuality. Well, I don't know if I like that anymore. You know, well, this is why you should, and we explain it and so forth. And then coming to embrace that, you see that philosophical understanding, that truth, that tattva, it starts to form what we call a swarup. It has a ground on which it's formed. It's a form of ecstasy, but it's the ground on which it's formed is called tattva, truths. And so that we shouldn't shy away from such explanations because when we, we, we embrace them and we let go of previous notions and so forth, then our understanding, our sambandha jnana, starts to be um, refined. Hmm? And again, that the ground on which Baba, from which Baba will arise is, is being put in place. And sharanagati, the, the, the kind of like resignation to give myself over to the teaching, that's the stage on which the drama of love of God will be performed. That has to be in place. And so I, there are things that I cannot know with my mind and intellect. We should enter into it with that in mind. And the sacred texts speak about some things you cannot know with those. And then so the answers are there. And they don't fit between the ears, but like the fact that you have no beginning. It doesn't doesn't really fit between the ears in a sense. But it's true. (laughs) Um, So, a little explanation to help... uh, Bring some clarity to that. Does it help? Mm-hmm. Good. What's the time? What else? Any other thoughts? One thought about what you were just saying. Um, it seems like the movement from the literal to the esoteric is like a movement further inward. So the literal, I'm just trying to understand if I'm understanding it right. So the literal would be the focus on um, material nature and the um, interpretive abuse of moving more in the chitta, where the chitta is cleansed and those samskaras are replaced with bhakti samskaras and then the esoteric would be moving to the atma proper, to consciousness proper. Well, it's not exactly like that. I mean, even in, in, even in the um, literal Understanding and, and, and explanation, one's experiencing some progress, some cleansing. Um, yeah, people can chant and not know the meaning, still be benefited and so forth. So, in all, all, all of the um, these approaches to or understandings of the text can be useful at certain stages. Or maybe what's maybe difficult sometimes is to move from a literal where you've been taught in that way to a more interpretive one. Um, it's like another another joining, if you will, joining on another on another level of the teachings. Um, but the and the and the the the, the, the um, literal is it's not about material nature. But it tends to see the divinity and tends to need the divinity to be talked about in ways that are materially or physically um, verifiable because of identifying with matter. Let's say, for example, I say, Krishna appeared on earth 5,000 years ago. Hmm? And so then, and it, it, so, so you want to look at it from a literal point of view. It has to be literally true in terms of history. And so, for you to be your faith to be preserved in that condition, so you have to go find out archaeological facts and was there was there a Dwarka and a bridge, you know, to to Lanka and these kind of things, and and you try to. It's it, 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 that kind of faith may require something like that, hmm? some type of um, material, because you're identified with the with the, in that sense more with the outer world. Hmm? So it's it's yours if your frame of reference for verification and so forth. 
But in the esoteric or the interpretive perspective, when you're moving into that, you realize the real world is the meditative world. <laughs> the outer world's not the real world. That's not the verification of everything. Hmm? If I can't verify it materially, empirically, it doesn't make it um, wrong. Hmm? That's not the standard of, of knowledge. It's not the real world. Hmm? Meditative, the internal, subjective world, the world of the utmost, the real world. And so, so there's a relaxing then of the need for this kind of um, external verification that in the beginning may be very, like, wow, check this out. You know, Krishna was here 5,000 years ago. Here is his footprint. You, know? you can go to India and you can find a footprint on an altar. You can look at it and go, yeah, I guess it's a footprint. Yeah, it's a footprint. Yeah, because you, you're told it's a footprint. So you, what's really happening is somebody like Rupa Goswami looked and saw the footprint. It's his vision, it's bhava that we're actually honoring. He, because in bhava one will see things differently. So one will see, oh, let's just see that rock. I see there's Krishna. Right there. See, there's his nose. There, you know, something like that. So then we honor the ecstasy of the saint who sees it like that. That's see. Now we're moving from a literal to an interpretive perspective. Krishna's footprint didn't go away. Krishna didn't go away. But then you have reason to say, well, it doesn't look like exactly where are the toes and you know, kind of the footprint. And five thousand years ago, there's a footprint preserved. And you know, you, say, you kind of. Say, and the idea is that he was walking and the stone melted and there's a, this is how Rupa Goswami saw it. Sanatana Goswami saw it like this. Hmm? He saw it happen in his meditative reality. Hmm? And so, but in the beginning, you can go to Vrindavan and then you can see, oh, here's Krishna's footprint, there's this. Uh, this lake, you see, this is a little yellow because Krishna, Radhi Rani used to Wash the turmeric off her hands that 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 Yashoda would put on her hands every time she came because that meant you know that she would marry her son. So, but she'd have to wash it off before she could go home. And, and so, see, it's like, yeah. So, in the beginning, that you know maybe wow, incredible place, and it's true. But there's more to it <laughs> that that you know the, the, the deeper kind of. Uh, interpretive explanation, if you will, that's uh, useful. So, you're right in a sense that the literal is more focused on the external world. It's focused on the Godhead, but grounded in, in the objective world and and, um, and so seeking to verify always from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Whereas the in the in interpretive perspective, there's more gray and there's more, you're a little more relaxed about the whole thing. As I say, there, there's some uh, there's some uncertainty that's that you that you that, that's 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 that that brings certainty. Hmm? That it's 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 more than than anything literal or uh, something like that. Does that help? Yeah. Okay. Anything else? Yes. Um, it seems that uh, as a teacher, you um, try to bring your students to an uh, interpretive understanding. Um, <laughs> right away. <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> as, I was wondering what your purpose was. Well, there's a different uh, reasons. Um, and uh, one of them is time and circumstance. So... My Guru Maharaj brought this tradition to the West in 1965. Uh, that's quite a long time ago, right? 50 years ago, something like that. Um, so a lot has happened since then, materially. The world's very, very, very different. And also the tradition and its teaching is more readily available. It's been shared in different ways, talked about. Other teachers have come um, after him commented on it in different ways, in, in, in ways that he didn't feel um, the time and circumstance warranted. And so he gave a, more of a literal type of explanation and, and was trying to get a foothold in 
the Western world for this, this teaching and get his students to have a foothold. So he, he tended to speak about it in, in, in that way. But the time is very different now. I mean, when I was young, when I was your age, how old are you now? 22, 23? 22, and I was had joined the mission. Um, in, in those days, we would, uh, you know, rent a house and put up a sign that said, Love Feast on Sunday. People would come, we would chant, and people would join. You know, we tell them you weren't the body, there was reincarnation, you should be a vegetarian. That's about, you know, as much as we knew, you know. <laughs> And people were joining. It was, it, was, uh, it was like, wow, you know, it's a whole new thing. It was the Indian spirituality coming to the West. Well, Indian spirituality has come to the West, like, like I say, 50 years ago, and in different forms also, with different traditions. And it's had a foothold, and it's very subtle, so it's very subtly infiltrated into Western culture. Where you can hear on a talk show, you know, somebody say, "Well, that's bad karma," you know, <laughs> you know, and uh, some of the words have become part of the dictionary and concepts, not well understood, but uh, often. But yoga is everywhere and popular, and um, and so on and so forth. Um, so the times are different, and um, students um, can digest more because more has been shared and infiltrated into the environment and into the culture and so forth. And so I'm kind of picking up, in, in a sense, where he left, left off. And, uh, and uh, so we're starting at a different, uh, slightly different uh, perspective. And also, myself, a lot of the teaching that I do is to people who have been involved for for a long time, for many, many years. And I was asked to do that by, by my Siksha Guru, Puja Patridhar Marsh. So, um, there you go. You know, we can have an audience, often, I can have an audience that has people that have been involved for 40 years, and somebody's been there for four days. So, it's an art to kind of say something for everybody, too high for some, too low for others, and and so on. So I, I'm always trying to bring everybody in on some level. Like some of the things I said tonight, I'm sure you're sure you identify with some of them. You just don't know what I'm talking about in some areas, you know. So, but others then um, pick up on that and so on. So, because I have always, for the most part, a mixed audience, then um, in one way it, it lends to newer people coming up and getting more. And uh, um, in, in, in those sessions, of course, it's, it, there are things that are said that, are, that, every, that not everybody can digest and understand, but that doesn't mean it's not good for them. Because, after all, this is not really an intellectual or rational exercise unto itself. It's an application, a spiritual application of reasoning. Hmm. And so I will speak from my heart, with my head, and my mouth, with my head, I'm translating the feeling, love, into reasoning, and then trying to address the reasoning of the crowd so that their reasoning will be captured, and then they'll relax, and everything can go into their heart and create a sangskar to, 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 to bring them in a natural way in this direction, to have an influence that makes them naturally have an affinity for the for the teaching and if you build on that then it becomes a favorable wind so like people listen with their intellect and they're not always ready to let everything you know go in but if you can capture their intellect and that that relaxes then you can go straight into the heart and create a change or create impressions that will have an influence on you better be careful <laughs> people and as they go forward <laughs> it's a good influence but you follow so, uh, you know, if someone, let's say someone has dysentery, can't go to India without getting dysentery. So that's how it used to be. I haven't been there in a few years. But So let's say you have dysentery. So if you go to the Ayurvedic doctor and you've got a real bad case, he may say, okay, you can't eat anything. You can't keep anything down. Okay, I want you to take a tablespoonful of ghee. Ghee is 
butter, oil. So you take butter and you turn it into ghee. It's like the essence of the essence of the milk. Inside of milk is yogurt, inside of milk is butter, inside of milk is cream, and ghee. So ghee is the clarified butter, right? It's very rich and it's very powerful. It's a very concentrated uh, form of nutrition. Now, it's rich, so if you eat a spoonful of ghee, whoa, it can you know, make your stomach upset, and what to speak if you have dysentery. So you think, what kind of medicine is this? You're going to give me a spoonful of ghee, I'm going to vomit it up. And he says, yeah, but it's such a powerful form of food that if a little bit will stick, and then you'll get nourished from that, because you can't keep anything down. Hmm? So sometimes we speak in ways that is like a totally you can't digest it. Hmm? But still, something will stick in there from a, from, a, from a powerful esoteric type of explanation. Something will stick and it will be nourished. That's the idea. <laughs> okay, so we'll stop there. Sisi Gornathananda ki jai, Guri Vishnu Guru Parampara ki jai, Bhaktivinda ki jai, Bhaktivinda ki jai, Bhaktivinda ki jai,